Hi, you're listening to the Rosenfeld Review, where we're just a bunch of blind men trying to figure out the elephant. I'm Lou Rosenfeld, your host, and my guest today is Jeff Susna. Hi, Jeff. Hi, how are you? Great to have you on the show. Jeff talking to us from a polar vortex-encrusted uh, Minnesota. Um, Jeff is the CEO and founder of Susna Associates consulting firm that works with software teams and executives to meet the demand for continuous service delivery. And maybe we'll get into what that means in just a moment. But um, you also might know him uh, for uh, writing the O'Reilly book, Designing Delivery. I got to know Jeff a little bit through, uh, I think it was the very first Design Ops Summit back in 2017, where we all kind of um, crashed into each other on Twitter uh, because... uh, I think you were you were picking on Dave Maloof's definition of design ops because you had a you're an expert in um, DevOps, and I, if I recall, uh, you felt that um, uh, certainly DevOps is Dev plus ops. Did I get that right? And design ops maybe needed to be framed in a similar way. Uh, no, I, it was, it was a very brief little thing that there were some, on the one hand, there were some misunderstandings about DevOps, but that didn't prevent design ops from being a perfectly fine thing on its own. So there was some brief discussion of, well, that's not really what DevOps is, but the truth is it doesn't matter. Just go do your thing because it's a good thing to do. And you helped us do that thing. You were one of the speakers at that first conference and, uh, uh, quite, uh, quite a success, a uh, successful talk. And it was great to have you as part of it. So Jeff and I have stayed in touch and every once in a while we, we talk and, uh, certainly like to follow him on Twitter and you should too, by the way, he's, uh, just Jeff Sussna, J E F F S U S S N A on Twitter. And, uh, so last time, uh, he was kind of grouching a bit, uh, just a, like a, 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 a hint of cynicism uh, the last time we were in touch about the collaboration between disciplines uh, involved with developing and designing products. And uh, we wanted to explore that a little bit today. So, um, Jeff, you're not so happy about the state of this stuff. <laughs> What's well, going on? Me, you caught me at a particular moment. Um, I think I was having a bad week. Uh, but... But that's what so makes now, it so interesting. So, so now you might say I'm not cynical so much as sometimes sad. And it actually goes all the way back to that design ops conference because what I was talking about, which is what I'm always talking about or what I'm often talking about, is connecting design and development and operations to each other. And it's funny because, yes, DevOps is Dev plus Ops. And when I first heard the word design ops, I got very excited because I thought, oh, it's design plus operations, which is kind of my thing. You know, how do you take design thinking and agile and DevOps and bring them all together? And it, it hasn't happened particularly. There's still a lot of bumps and bruises. And I think what's going on is that there's a lot of mutual misunderstanding about what it is that the various disciplines are trying to do and how they could learn from each other. And to be perfectly honest, I, at this point, 
think a lot of it is Agile's fault, if it's anybody's fault. Um, I just did a webinar this morning where I was talking about Agile and DevOps and what it is that they're really about. And I think the, the problem is that we have developed this idea that Agile is about doing more work faster and pushing stuff out the door. When really it's about allowing yourself to make decisions about where to go next more continuously. And I think there's a tremendous amount that design and engineering in the digital world have to offer each other. If we could figure out how to get beyond some of the misunderstanding and different language and so on and so forth. So it's interesting. Uh, it, it's definitely a lot of it does come down to language. And anyone who listens to this podcast knows that I'm always going on about the, the need for some kind of Rosetta Stone between uh, these different practices. But I wonder with Agile, does part of the problem come to people in many cases seeing it as a practice rather than a method and, and it becomes their role, it becomes how they define themselves. And so that becomes, uh, it becomes important for them to justify their existence by delivering uh, the things that stakeholders want, namely faster and more for cheap. Um, I think it's the second part. I, do, I don't think the problem, in my opinion, is practice versus method. I think it's partly an, a, a misunderstanding of what the intention is. You know, it's funny when I give talks about Agile, I take a moment and I define the word agility which is the effectiveness and efficiency with which you can change direction. And I like to use skiing as an example. So in downhill skiing, which is about going fast, every course correction slows you down. So you want to turn as little as possible. Uh, slalom is all about how early and smoothly and continuously you can turn. So they're fundamentally different activities. If you want to go fast and you know where you're going, and that's sort of the key question here, then agile practices like Scrum, they actually slow you down, right? Why have everybody stand in a room for 15 minutes every morning and talk about what they're doing when they could just be at their desk doing? So agile and agility aren't really about going fast, but for whatever reason, um, and I'm not going to sort of get into a critique of capitalism or Taylorist management or anything like that here, is it has become, it has in many cases turned into a way of going faster. Um, how do you get this done faster is, is sort of the problematic view, as opposed to how do we allow ourselves to learn sooner? Interesting because, uh, you know, it just makes me think that maybe the problem isn't with the method, it's, it's with the, the problem that the method's brought in to address. So, you know, if you have a, maybe a, a, a traditional waterfall situation, the, the, what's going on is frustration over speed, maybe more than frustration over the, you know, the, the quality of the outcome. I mean, I don't know. I'm, this is, 
these are waters that I wade into very carefully, but, um, uh, yeah. And that's, we could, we could have a long conversation just about that. Um, but one of the things I try and do is I think one of the places where agile has gotten itself into trouble with the design community is there's a principle which is working code is the primary measure of progress. And from a design perspective, it starts to feel like, well, all you can do is pump out these little bits of incremental improvement. You can't actually do real innovation because you're supposed to be delivering working code every two weeks. And you don't have any time to really think or explore or research you just move the widget over here, move the widget over there, add this new widget, that kind of thing. Now, the reason for that is that Agile actually arose as a very practical solution to a big problem, which is in the 80s and 90s, you had these huge IT projects. They would go on for five or 10 years, they would cost tens of millions of dollars. And when they were done, they didn't work, they were full of bugs, and they didn't actually, they weren't fit for purpose. Um, either because the purpose hadn't been understood in the first place or because the purpose has ch had changed. And so Agile came along and said, well, this is a lousy way to build software. It's not working. Um, what we need to do is validate the work that we're doing more often, right? So instead of testing our code every three months, let's test our code every day. Instead of getting customer feedback by delivering them something every year or every five years, let's do it every two weeks. Um, so it was fundamentally a validation method, a learning method. And I think that works really well with design because design is this idea that, <clears throat> or you know, human-centered design is based on this premise that you think you know what the customer needs. Well, Maybe you need to find out. And on the design side, the way you find out is with things like research and prototyping and critique and user testing. And on the agile side, the DevOps side, the way you find out is by watching customers actually use what you've built. My view is it's a continuum and they, they need to work together. So it's funny. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so, okay. Um, so designers actually should be comfortable with, uh, an agile approach and yet we don't tend to be. And is that because of how we think about our own work, especially on the research side, or is it about how we collaborate <clears throat> with, uh, developers who are trying to do things using an agile methodology, or maybe it's just, again, coming down to the language. Well, I think it's a few things. Um, one is that the way that Agile, the, the, the focus on learning tends to get lost and it does become a matter of push stuff out the door, push the next thing out the door. Mm -hmm. um, I did a workshop with a German software company a few years ago and they had a very sophisticated Agile and DevOps practice. And when I went in talking to them, I thought, I'm not actually sure how much I have to teach these folks. And during the morning session, I asked them to do an exercise, which was to take one of their linear processes and rethink it as a circular feedback-driven process. 
And they all smiled and winked and laughed. And one of them raised his hand and said, well, we don't actually have any linear processes anymore. We've made them all feedback driven. I said, all right, well, indulge me. Let's do the exercise and maybe it'll be really quick and we can go on with the rest of the day. And I'd broken them into four teams and three of the four teams independently came to the same conclusion that they reported to me very sheepishly. They realized that they were very, very good at collecting feedback and they didn't use it. Hmm. They threw it on the floor. They didn't actually change where they were going next based on the feedback from what they had done last. And so they had, and it's very, very tempting to fall into this, you know, continuous delivery model where deliver, 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 and not stopping to go, well, did we actually get the result we want? This is a place where I think designers have a lot to teach folks because you're always asking, well, does this really do what we expected? Right? Does it make the experience better? Does it make the experience worse? Um, let's test our assumptions. On the other side, one of the things I have seen from the design community, particularly as we start to grapple with the ethics of software systems, is a certain view that, well, there are all these unintended consequences and that's because it wasn't designed properly. That what we need to do is think through the true impact and the ethics of what we're doing upfront. And then we can avoid unintended consequences. Um, to which I say, I strongly support that with one caveat. The systems we're building, you know, if you build something like Twitter or Facebook, you are building a complex system for a complex human system. And the thing about complex systems is you can't actually predict them. You cannot predict their behavior. And what you need to do instead is continuously validate, is this thing still behaving the way we thought it would? And so I think, and if I remember correctly, this is what I was talking about at Design Ops, is that designers need to grapple with the realities of complex systems where you can't actually say, well, we, and you know, if you go back to the product world, right? You spend a bunch of time, you know, Massimo Vignelli spends a bunch of time and he does, designs a coffee mug and that coffee mug gets sold for the next 50 years. It's a great coffee mug. Um, these complex software systems don't work like physical products. Um, they're constantly changing and the world around them is constantly changing. So design, where I think design can learn from Agile and DevOps is yes, we've done all of our exploration and validation and design up front, but we can't fully answer the question until things are being used for real. And we need to keep looking at them as people use them, which is for me where the operations part comes in because operations tells you in the largest sense, this is what's actually happening with the real thing. You know, this is how many times a day um, this person is taking the Vignelli coffee mug out of the cupboard and drinking from it. And this is what they're pouring in it. And this is how many times they drop it on the floor, right? <laughs> wow. Um, I have a thought about this, a question for you actually, but this is probably a good time for break because my coffee is getting cold. 
We'll be right back with the Rosenfeld Review, Jeff Sosna. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you want more, not only do we have a whole bunch of podcasts in our archive, but we have something that's very current, very alive, and very engaging for groups. And that is our communities. Rosenfeld Media runs a variety of communities that meet on a monthly basis for video conferences on a variety of topics near and dear to UX people, ranging from enterprise experience to advancing research to design and research operations. I want to encourage you to join one of our communities. Again, it is free by going to rosenfeldmedia.com communities. Not only will you get a monthly video conference that you can listen in on and participate in, ask questions and so forth. We'll give you access to the recordings. And uh, for some of those communities, we're talking about dozens of recordings with really interesting presenters and facilitators. You'll also get a newsletter. You'll get access to an advice columnist. Yes, we actually are providing advice columnists for each community. And finally, if you're interested in our conferences, our communities correspond to our conferences. So you will be the first to know when programs, uh, when programs go live, uh, when tickets go on sale, and by the way, most of our conferences sell out, and other good things about our conferences, such as uh, when the scholarship applications open up. So go to rosenfeldmedia.com communities. You're going to find something that's free, something that's interesting, and it's a great opportunity to find your tribe as well. We'll see you there. Welcome back to the Rosenfeld Review. I'm with Jeff Susna, and I was about to ask him uh, a question. So you you know, the, talking about the 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 mug, the coffee cup, and it's uh, you know fairly stable, finite nature versus Facebook or Twitter, the, the complex system of of humans and information and networks and policies and all that fun stuff. Uh, and how we struggle with the latter, obviously, and how you know you could argue that much of contemporary society is now broken thanks to those poorly conceived, uh, maybe not poorly conceived systems, but I think you would argue that they're not really being reconceived as they're being used. Um, I think part of the problem is that we take product thinking from you know designing a coffee cup or mug and try to apply it to these whole ecosystems. And, you know, there's plenty of people who work on complex things like Facebook who are called product designers and who think in terms of product. <laughs> and it's that word that <laughs> I want to ask you about. It's product. Yep. So um, when I was a consultant, I, I found that many of my clients um, could not solve problems because of language. Um, I used to do an exercise. This is so. This goes so far back. Uh, you'll chuckle, but many of them it, uh, wanted uh, to design portals for their employees, whatever it might be. And mm -hmm. I said, "Okay, let's let's have our meeting, but I'm going to draw uh, some ground rules. And the main rule is this." no one gets to use the word portal. And if you use the word portal, you throw a dollar in the table. And if I use the word portal, I throw $10 in the table. Let's see how this goes. 
And it really changed the complexion of those conversations. It really forced us all to talk not about uh, things that had, had sort of questionable definitions, but um, really what was going on, the reality of the situation. Is that maybe what we should be doing with the word product at this point? Uh, if I had my druthers, we would. And um, a number of, I actually discovered two things simultaneously many years ago. Um, the first was cloud computing, and the second was service design. And that interest introduced me to the idea of service as something that you design and operate. Right. Another term for cloud computing is software as a service. And so I talk a lot about service in my book. Um, I used to use the word service a lot. And I used to try and get people to use the word service instead of the word product. And to think about service as shifting your focus from making things. Here's a coffee cup that we made. If you give us $5, you can have the coffee cup and you can keep it forever to everything that's involved in helping somebody accomplish something, right? Why do I use Slack? Because I, get, I need to get work done with other people across boundaries of time and space and org chart and organization and that kind of thing. That's what I'm trying to do. That's the service that Slack provides is helping me do that. What I discovered is service design has been somewhat successful and service-centered thinking has been somewhat successful in Europe, not so much in the US. And so at some point, I agree with you 100 million percent that product economy thinking is part of the problem. Um, but I've, I've stopped using the word service. There is another word that I have been using, um, that I've been finding very helpful, which potentially accomplishes a similar thing, which is the word promise. Hmm. And I got it from something called promise theory, which was developed by a gentleman named Mark Burgess, who's a good friend of mine and an incredibly brilliant and wonderful person. Um, and in fact, I'm gonna change my answer to your last question of the podcast based on this. Um, anyway, promise theory is a, a way of modeling how large scale complex systems of any type can function without becoming brittle and ungainly. And the idea is through voluntary cooperation that the parts of the system help each other by making promises to each other. So Slack promises to help you collaborate across boundaries. And it promises to help you do that by allowing you to have real-time and non-real-time conversations, to be able to dip in and out of them without getting lost, so on and so on and so forth. Now, the idea of a promise is really interesting. And when Mark first introduced me to the idea, I read this article he wrote and I thought it was lovely. and I had no idea what he was talking about. And it took him three or four tries. And finally I went, oh, it's in the word. You would like this because it's right in the word. P 
promise is an intention to do something for someone's benefit that may or may not come to pass. If your teenager promises to clean their room before dinner, if you've had teenagers, you know that the chance they'll do it is about 50%, right? That's generous, but yes. So the word promise captures three things all at once. The first is the sense of service, that if, I, if your teenager promises to listen to Pink Floyd in your room, you don't really care. It has no value to you, right? It's when they promise to clean their room that there's some kind of interesting relationship. Secondly, there's the possibility of failure. Sometimes we break our promises, which is actually really important because it, it forces you to think about how can we avoid failure, right? And how what you're might... capable of. It actually yes. helps you scope your ability. Right. So if Twitter promises to bring people together, how might it break that promise? And how can we design by explicitly thinking about unintended consequences? And then the, the final piece of the puzzle is it actually builds in continuous learning and improvement because you have the opportunity to say, you know, what are we promising? How effectively are we fulfilling our promises? And how might we be more effective and even better? This is where the innovation comes in. Are we actually making the most useful promises we could? Are there promises that we could make that we aren't, that would be even more valuable? And so one of the areas where I've had success in starting to bridge these boundaries is by using um, some visual techniques to get people designing and delivering and operating systems in terms of promises instead of features. So instead of saying, here's a coffee cup, it's here's the ability to drink hot liquid. And the ability to drink hot liquid is something that you can evolve over time, right? You, you don't have to just sell the same coffee mug. You can say, hey, we found a better way. And it's the same promise and we're in the same business, but we are evolving. There's some interesting parallels to uh, jobs to be done theory. Oh, they have nothing to do with each other whatsoever. But in terms Completely of the framing around a job. I'm, I'm joking. Okay. I'm joking. Okay. They're, they're, they're very, yes. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that the, the difference is a promise is a job to be done that has Failure, the idea of failure and learning and evolution built into it. I love it. Um, you know, you really got me thinking about, um, let's say, the promise of a Rosenfeld Media book or one of our conference programs. Uh, we have yes. a hard time at times telling the story, uh, even when we are engaging in that storytelling from the very get-go when uh, we're, we're developing a book proposal with a potential author. Um, but that galvanizes quite a bit for me, so I appreciate that. And, and it would be a good moment then uh, to wrap up and talk a little bit more about promise theory. Uh, but before you do that, uh, I'd like to find time to talk with you again because I feel like there's a whole, um, you, you got me thinking about some pretty large topics that don't fit into our nice little half hour podcast, like Good. complex adaptive systems, which uh, I studied with John Holland uh, as a PhD student. Ah, and, okay. And, and I'll uh, have to be careful 
when I talk about them because you well, probably know what you're no, talking about. I, I had no clue when I took the class what huh. he was talking about. This is like, you know, 1992. Now I'm finally mm -hmm. catching up. And he was ahead of his time in, in 92 for sure. Yeah. Um, and also just the the issue of um, of time and pacing and ultimately cadence. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on how design and specifically research uh, has multiple cadences for multiple methods and how they do or don't work well uh, as part of an Agile methodology. I don't feel like that's being discussed enough, certainly not in the research world. And mm -hmm. the fact that the cadence of a you know, a large, you know, ethnographic field study is is very different than, you know, a daily sip of the analytics. Mm -hmm. But we'll find another time to do that. Why don't we? Why don't we bring it home with uh, uh, a little bit more about promise theory and how we could learn more? So I would recommend uh, Mark Burgess's book, Thinking and Promises. That's B U R G E S S. Yes. Uh, he also has a number of short introductory videos. His background is he was a professor of systems administration theory uh, in Oslo for many years, and he's a fantastic teacher, and his lectures are the best lectures I've ever heard. Um, I'm not a sit and listen to a lecture kind of guy, but, you know, five or 10 or even 20 minutes with one of his videos are just delightful. Um, and if you, if you want to pick any kind of webinar or online lecture or anything to listen to um, that isn't going to be boring or frustrating, he's the guy. He's just an absolutely skilled and delightful speaker. Fantastic. Well, uh, we will definitely be looking into that. We'll share a little bit of information, uh, along with the podcast so people can learn more about promise theory and uh jeff delight talking with you jeff uh susna of susna associates uh if you want to learn more about jeff uh susna-associates.com or on twitter at jeff susna great to have you on the show today thanks again great to be here thanks thanks for listening to the rosenfeld review brought to you by rosenfeld media if you like our show, please subscribe and review it on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast platform. I'd love it if you tell a friend to have a listen. And please check out our website for over 100 podcasts with other interesting people. You'll find them all at rosenfeldreview.com.